ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. We know that Lime is really disruptive to the microbiome and to the mucosal barrier in the gut. So if you have a leaky gut, either as a result of having Lyme disease or because of maybe years of antibiotics for Lyme treatment, then you may end up with oxalate issues. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 206 with nutrition expert Emily Givler. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode you will learn what is an oxalate and why it's bad for you, the best way to test at home if you have an oxalate sensitivity, and how having Lyme disease can increase your chances of having an oxalate sensitivity. In case you haven't guessed, this episode's all about oxalates. It's a special episode, specialty episode. And Emily Gibbler is quite the expert. I've been encouraging her to write a book, and I hope she does. The other thing I like to mention is the quality of the sound turned out a little bit funky. It didn't sound so bad when I was recording it, but in retrospect, it's a little tinny. So sorry about that. It's worth fighting through and listening to. Emily is quite the treasure when it comes to nutritional information about oxalates. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week we've had listeners from Poland to the Philippines and from India to Indonesia. Also a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Chicago, Illinois. Number 9, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. Number 8, Kansas City, Missouri. Number 7, uh, v- Visalia. Visalia, California. Yes. Number 6, Alexandria, Minnesota. Number 5, Bourne, Texas. Number 4, Arlington, Virginia. Number 3, Burnaby, Canada. Number 2, Mountain View, California. And number 1, Dudley in the United Kingdom. Do you know your Lyme score? If not, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. 
It's free. Okay, Aurora, thanks for that. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Emily Givler. From the Tree of Life website, Emily Givler is a functional and genetic nutrition consultant and dietary supplements counselor with the Nutrigenetic Research Institute and Tree of Life. She specializes in food sensitivities and utilizing genetically influenced dietary protocols designed to maximize health outcomes. She holds degrees from the Holt Institute of Medicine and Pan American Institute. Thanks, Aurora. And here is our interview with nutrition expert, Emily Givler. Hello, Emily. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hey, McKay. How are you doing? Fantastic. And I'm so excited to speak with you about oxalates. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you. Like, I know you work with Bob Miller down in his clinic in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. But how did you get interested in health? and healing, and what's your story with oxalates? Uh, Oxalates are a very personal issue for me, Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but oxalates are the reason that I got into nutrition and health and wellness. Uh, When I was about 14, I started having chronic pain that's in my right hip and then fairly rapidly progressed to a full right side body pain and a lot of fatigue. So it started when I was a teenager and I went through about five years of being shipped around from doctor to doctor. I was an athlete at the time, so it was largely sports medicine, in and out of physical therapy, different orthopedists, and no one could really give me an answer as to why I hurt all the time. Every test that they did came back normal. Um, and it just became incredibly frustrating, and my pain level just got progressively worse and worse and worse until I was about 19, and I was I went to a rheumatologist who diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And what she told me was the good news was that it would not cause pain, um, disfigurement, and it would not shorten my lifespan. Oh my right, goodness, but, that's but awful. That's the good dead. news? <laughs> that's the good news. And the oh, bad news was that geez. my pain level would just get progressively worse over the rest of my non-shortened, non-disfigured life. And I was 19. So I asked her what I could do. She said, here is your narcotic painkiller. Wow, really? every day. Yeah, it gets better. Take six to eight every day. Days that your pain is bad, double that. And then as your pain gets worse, we'll just increase your narcotics. And I want you to take Tylenol every day on top of that. And I I was maybe 115 pounds. And at that point, my pain was extreme every day. So I was looking at taking 12 to 16 painkillers every day plus Tylenol. So I looked at her and I said, well, I would like to have a liver and kidneys by the time I'm 40. So what's my other option? antidepressants yeah. and I just looked at her I said I was I was not depressed before this conversation <laughs> now I sure am so traditional medicine was not able to offer me any explanation even I felt like the fibromyalgia label was a very convenient 
medical shorthand for you're tired and you hurt all the time and we don't really know why. Yeah. So I was incredibly frustrated by that. It didn't seem like the type of life that I wanted to lead. So I started looking for other avenues, other ways of dealing with the pain, other ways to hopefully get rid of the pain. And that's what really set me on my journey. Um, So I have gone through a lot of uh, different modalities, different iterations, uh, and I can say that my pain has come progressively down over the years. But then once I really got a handle on the oxalate issue, my pain is now maybe 5% of what it was when I was a teenager. And um, I'm in my late 30s now, and I have three kids ages 10 and under, and my energy is so much higher than it was when I was a teenager. Thank goodness, or I would never be able to keep up with them. Uh, But managing the oxalates has become the primary thing that ultimately has reduced the pain and increased the energy. So when did you first learn about oxalates? Embarrassingly uh, far into my journey. I realized that I had been kind of working with oxalates without realizing it for about 10 years. But it was only about five years ago that it became clear to me that the oxalates were actively a piece of the puzzle for other people's fibromyalgia. But it wasn't until a few years ago when I first ran my own urine organic acids test that it kind of smacked me in the face that this was my issue as well. And it's interesting. Once I had that test in front of me saying, yes, your oxalates are screamingly high. This is where your pain is coming from. Then I was able to look back at the points in my life when my pain was the worst. And when I was in college, my pain was unequivocally higher than it ever has been. And where I went to school, we had a a vegetarian and vegan cafe on campus. And it was part of the meal plan. I was vegetarian at the time. So I diligently ate my salads and my dark leafy greens and my beets every single day, three meals a day, seven days a week, because it was there and I thought I was doing the right thing. And oxalates are very high in lots of otherwise healthy foods like spinach and Swiss chard and beets. So I thought I was doing healthy things for my body. And what I was actually doing was driving my pain through the roof because of the overconsumption of oxalic acid. Wow. So we're clear now that oxalates can be a problem and a hidden problem. So let's circle back and will you explain what what are oxalates? Do you only right, eat them? Does the good. Yeah, does the body make them? Like why are they bad? So oxalates are sometimes produced endogenously. We make them in a couple of places, including the Krebs cycle. Uh, The last turn of the Krebs cycle, the oxaloacetate, is one of the endogenous ways that we produce oxalates. And oxalates are also produced by things like yeast. So if we have yeast overgrowth, then we can see an excess of endogenous oxalates. Oxalic acid is a byproduct of mold, such as aspergillus as well. And the main way that most of us are getting oxalates is from our food, especially vegetables. Now, they don't all have the the same level of oxalates there. The oxalates are an anti-nutrient found in these plants. And plants like spinach, 
beets, both the root and the beet green, rhubarb and Swiss chard, those foods in the goosefoot family, are excessively high in oxalates. Most of us have, you know, we've been eating plants for thousands of years. So most of us have developed ways of clearing the oxalates out. Our body is well-equipped to handle them under most circumstances, but there are genetic variants that can cause us to not handle the oxalates well, especially variants on AGXT. Um, there are, if there are issues with the digestive tract, especially with bile flow, the gallbladder, and fat emulsification, that can cause us to have issues with overabsorbing oxalates. Um, if we have, again, yeast overgrowth, that can give us a high level of uh, endogenous oxalates being produced. So there are a lot of people who are dealing with high levels of oxalates because of multiple reasons. They're eating a lot of them. They have bacterial imbalance. They have yeast overgrowth. Uh, they have digestive or, or, or gallbladder issues that are creating higher absorption. And so we can end up overwhelming our body's capacity to get rid of, of these um, naturally occurring substances. What about soy? Soy is a high oxalate food. There are, there are hundreds of foods that are high in oxalate, and they're not all high to the same degree. And that's one thing that can be tricky for people to understand. If you look up a list of high and low oxalate foods, Anything that has 10 milligrams or more of oxalates gets thrown into the high oxalate category. But so things like blueberries and blackberries do have high levels of oxalic acid because they're at 11 and 13 milligrams of oxalates per half cup serving, respectively. But things like the spinach, the Swiss chard, uh, the beets, they all have more than 600 milligrams of, of oxalates in a half cup serving. So many times higher. Soy is kind of in a, it's high, it's several hundred, not quite as high as things like the, the spinach and the beets. But because of the glyphosate contamination on so much of our soy, because so much of it is that Roundup Ready soy, um, glyphosate actually contains oxalic acid as part of its chemical structure. So not only is there the naturally occurring oxalate content, but there is the potential for that glyphosate residue, which would then be a, a secondary source of oxalic acid in the body. Okay, I've got one more. And where, what I'm going at is some people will make food substitutes thinking they're doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're having soy once a week, eh, not a big deal. But if you're having it every day or if you're having soy milk every day or a couple times a day – or other soy products, it can add up more than you would think. That's that's my point. And so um, one one more oh, like absolutely. that, yeah, is almond milk. And where does that fall in mm -hmm. with this? So nuts are generally high in oxalates, but with something like almond milk, there's so few actual almonds in it that it is unlikely to add a significant cumulative burden to the oxalate level. Thank so goodness. <laughs> where we actually run it, we actually run into bigger trouble with the vegetables and thinking that we're doing the right thing. And and I did this myself, and so 
I always like to point out to people, I have been there. I have inadvertently done the wrong thing. And what's right for one person may be completely wrong for someone else. If you don't have histamine or oxalate issues, then eating spinach frequently is probably a good idea for you. But if you have trouble with oxalates, then spinach is something that should stay out of your diet because a little goes a long way. Something like soy sneaks into the diet and so it can you see that cumulative buildup of not just the, the oxalic acid, but things like the glyphosate, which tends to go along with it, and potentially some of the, the endocrine disrupting effects of soy as well. So the soy is really sneaky. It builds up for a lot of different reasons. It's hidden in a lot of things. But the, um, the almond milk, you're not going to get a whole lot of actual almonds, so the oxalic acid is not excessively high. But for anyone who wants some really good lists of the actual quantity of oxalates in food. Um, Susan Owens' group, uh, Trying Low Oxalates, does a fantastic job of testing and measuring oxalic acid levels in food. She's my go-to resource to, to see exactly how many oxalates are in the foods we're eating. Okay. So now some of you out there are thinking, hmm, I wonder if I have a problem with oxalates. So will you just kind of go over the top 10 symptoms of oxalates? You hinted at that a little bit, but if we can do that explicitly. And then what's the best way to sure. test for oxalates? Oh, okay. This is an excellent question. One of the difficulties with oxalates is that the symptoms can vary depending on where the oxalates end up. So... I mentioned a lot of different things that can cause oxalate overabsorption, but essentially with all, with almost all of them, where they're coming from is the gut and we're either eating too many of them or we have some other type of digestive dysfunction that's causing an overabsorption of oxalates into the bloodstream. And then they're going to end up getting deposited into various tissues. And so the problems that we see depend on where those oxalates end up. So the oxalic acid ends up binding with minerals like calcium and forming calcium oxalate crystals. The most obvious and best recognized form are kidney stones. You can actually take the stones, put them under a microscope and say, aha, calcium oxalate. So we see the, the kidney stones being that really severe uh, oxalate presentation. But it is speculated that the oxalate crystals can accumulate in the peripheral tissues as well, where they're a, a big contributor to many pain presentations, especially things like connective tissue pain and fibromyalgia type pain. So that's what happens when the oxalate crystals form uh, in that peripheral tissue. So when there's a chronic pain presentation and it's not a structural type of issue, then oxalates are something to consider. Um, a lot of uh, issues around the pelvic girdle are also associated with oxalates. So not just the kidneys, uh, but things like interstitial cystitis has a very strong correlation with overabsorption of oxalates. Uh, vulvodynia, or vaginal burning and, and pain for women is almost 100% of the time associated with overabsorption of oxalates. Um, in in a lot of children, especially kids on the autism spectrum, we see developmental disorders being associated with overabsorption of oxalates with them crossing the blood-brain barrier. We see 
chronic yeast overgrowth being associated with high levels of oxalates. And in my practice, I also see a strong connection between endometriosis and overabsorption of oxalates, um, poor sulfur tolerance and overabsorption of oxalates, and a lot of lung-related issues because the oxalates can get absorbed into the lung tissues uh, as well. So they can really create a lot of, of dysfunction in many different ways depending on what tissue they end up in. So I'm cheating a little bit here because I, I do know a little bit about oxalates. So it sounds to me like there are two major uh, disruptions going on. And one is the crystal formation themselves. So whether they form in the kidney or in the joints or wherever else they're forming, you've got these shards of very hard calcium. Or Can, can it form with magnesium as well? Can it bind with magnesium? It does, and and it will deplete the body of magnesium. Yes. The, most of the sort, most of the stone formation. The hard part is the calcium. I mentioned the kidney stones. Yeah. Yeah, but you can also see things like bladder stones forming tonsil stones, and some people form ear crystals, which is yes. a, a big cause of vertigo. Yep. Um, so, and with the ear crystals, that's another one that you can actually see, and then you can displace them with the Epley maneuver. So, for for many people suffering from episodic or postural vertigo, it's worth checking for the ear crystals. And that's an oxalate issue. Absolutely. And you led into the second one there is that the oxalates chelate minerals. So you end up deplete, depleted of certain minerals because you have this oxalate issue. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. And so then you see all of these other comorbidities resulting from the loss of minerals. So there's also a strong connection between osteopenia and osteoporosis and high levels of oxalates uh, because the, okay. the oxalates are stealing your calcium and chelating it, pulling it out of the body. Oxalic acid will also chelate iron. So sometimes we see uh, anemic presentations going along with overabsorption of oxalates. Hmm. And then how about potassium? I have a friend who has Potassi major problems. Potassium and uh, zinc as well can both be disrupted by oxalates, uh, but we don't see that as strongly as we do the calcium, the magnesium, and the iron. Um, so that it may be impacting the potassium. There could be other factors at, at play there. Okay, so it's not like a direct... the oxalates aren't attacking the potassium the way it does with with calcium and iron okay very good now testing testing can be a little tricky why so with testing we have you just pee in a well, cup and there are oxalates there right well for for a lot of people it, it is that straightforward you the great plains uh urine organic acid test is the way that i test for oxalates and in a perfect world, if you have high oxalates, you excrete a high amount of oxalic acid in your urine, and we go, aha, you have high oxalates. However, if you are storing all of those oxalates, if they are being absorbed into your bloodstream and getting deposited in tissue, you may not be excreting high levels of oxalic acid. So there are times that those numbers look normal but oxalates are still the issue. In fact, the, the client that I have who has 
the worst level of oxalates, had the lowest measurable of oxalic acid that I have ever seen come back on a urine organic acid test. And I run hundreds of these tests. Her level was four. Typically, we see it in a normal, healthy person around 80. Um, So as we started binding and eliminating the oxalates and, and moving them out of tissue, I'm sure we'll talk about how we can do that comfortably in the body. We actually saw her excretion level of oxalic acid rise temporarily because she was actually starting to mobilize it out of the body and excrete it. So we can look for the oxalic acid metabolites on the urine organic acid, but we have to look at the other symptoms and and read our result in that context. Other things that would be indicators that oxalates are high, even if the oxalic acid is not either being measured or not showing up elevated, B6 deficiency uh, is very strongly correlated with overabsorption of oxalates. So how do you how do you measure organic? Uh, urine organic will measure u- urine organic acid will measure B six. Yeah, urine organic acid testing does give us a, a very accurate B six metabolite, um, and so if that's measuring low, that's another indicator that there may be oxalate issues, um, or we can look at our bacterial and yeast markers. So I tend to go with the urine organic acid for yeast and bacterial balance as well uh, because there are markers like arabinose, uh, which give us a a good uh, indicator of whether there's a yeast overgrowth. Um, If we use the Great Plains urine organic acid test, we can get some indicators of whether there may be some aspergillus or other types of mold present, which may be a source of endogenous oxalates. And remember that Krebs cycle is also going to give us some indicators about what's happening with oxalates. Uh, low urine citric acid is also associated with high levels of uh, oxalates. So we can look at the citrate level. We can look at the yeast and bacterial balance. We can look at the B6 level, or we can look directly at the oxalic acid. Okay, so let's back up a little bit, and will you just explain what, why the B6 gets depleted with high oxalates? So this is a, so the low B6 um, can actually be a cause of high oxalate. So oh, the other way around. The, okay, uh, right. So glyoxalate should get turned into glycine using the AGT enzyme and B6. And in the absence of B6, hey. the bioxalate is going to be converted into oxalate, and then we end up with, with too much oxalate, and we end up depleting our NAD plus in the process. Okay. Okay. And we'll just so, back up. So NAD plus is an electron donor, correct? Right. Okay. So that's just, mm-hmm. it's like another, you know, we all know of ATP. Uh, and the mitochondria is kind of being the powerhouses, but one of the places that the body stores some energy is in these NAD variants. So we're just we'll just leave it at that. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole because there's there's so much there. Oh, that's that's quite a rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. But, but yes, it, but we it, can. It might be the yes. Facilitate it's, facilitate the glyoxalate to glycine by pushing higher levels of B six. Right. Makes total sense there. 
Okay. And then the other was the citrate. Where does that come into play? The low citrate. So the low citrate, and here we want to look at the Krebs cycle. And so I mentioned that that last turn of the Krebs cycle is one way that we produce oxalate. So that oxaloacetate, um, which should get turned into citrate. So when we see the low citrate, we can infer that that oxalate and oxalic acid is building up in the body. So we can compensate and start moving the oxalates out of the system by pushing up citrate. And we can also help to minimize the absorption of oxalates uh, through the digestive tract by catching and binding them with calcium. So calcium citrate is often one of our go-to methods for minimizing oxalate absorption, as well as giving things like B6. And the research in, with kidney stones and B6 is pretty fantastic for its ability to reduce the, the uh, calcium oxalate crystal formation. Okay, brilliant. So let's just pause here. So talking about markers for oxalate buildup, we obviously have the oxalate themselves. And really, in okay. some cases, you're looking for too high, but maybe even too low is is a red flag as well. It's like the body's hanging on to the oxalates. And obviously the diet, if you see somebody eating, just you go over their diet and like, yeah, I'm eating uh, three green smoothies a day and I'm taking some green powder, mixing it in there and my joints hurt, right? So we've got the diet yeah. stuff. We've mm -hmm. got the low B6, vitamin B6 markers that can show up. Mm -hmm. We have, if there's a yeast or bacteria problem, that can be another source of the oxalate. So we look out for that. And then we look for the low citrate, which is a marker that, like the B6, it's not being converted. And I forget the exact chemicals, but essentially it's not being converted to the right stuff and being converted to oxalates instead. How'd, exactly. how'd I do? You have got it down. So there are all of these mechanisms. And actually, I can throw another one at you. If there's Great. poor fat metabolism, say that again. Then you are pro if if there's poor fat metabolism. Oh, really? Then you are that. This is one of the the, the biggest ways that we overabsorb oxalates because we need to bind the oxalic acid up with calcium in the digestive tract so that we can excrete it harmlessly in stool. And if we are not emulsifying and using our dietary fats they are going to get bound up with that calcium and we'll end up excreting the things we want, the dietary calcium and the dietary fat. And because we excrete those in the stool instead, then we overabsorb the oxalates through the digestive tract. So if you are seeing big problems with the gallbladder, with bile flow, with fat emulsification, then you are, are looking at another mechanism and another kind of diagnostic tool or way to assess whether there may be some issues with overabsorbing oxalate. So if you have trouble so with a fatty food, eating them and not feeling good afterwards, or you're finding kind of an oily stool, another sign or a very yeah, light stool, go yeah, ahead. The pale, the clay colored stool. If yeah. You have a, a stool test where you have a lot of fecal fat showing up. You know, those are good indicators that that there may be some uh, issues with the oxalate overabsorption. Okay, and just to just to clarify my, clarify my understanding, what you're saying is that the f fat 
preferentially binds with the calcium. So the calcium can't bind with the oxalate. So the oxalates are free to be absorbed and then do their havoc in the body. Yes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Now, the other thing I know about oxalates is you can't go cold turkey. Right? Very important. And this is where so many people go wrong. If you are eating a high level of oxalates, you need to very, very, very slowly reduce them. How slow so is very, can, very slowly? Like, are we talking um, month? Are we we're, talking we're a talking year? About, oh, this is this is a marathon, not a sprint. So we want to reduce them by only about 5% of dietary intake per week for most people. Now, we have identified many different mechanisms by which you can have problems over-absorbing oxalates. And the longer you've been dealing with this, the greater the chances are that you have multiple mechanisms because the, you end up in this negative feedback loop where the oxalates displace sulfur, which causes other problems. The oxalates chelate your magnesium, which causes other problems. So you see all of these comorbidities developing. And then that exacerbates the oxalate issues and you overabsorb more and more. So very slow diet changes. You never want to just stop eating all of your high oxalate foods. I typically recommend that before people make any dietary changes, that they start adding things like calcium citrate about 45 minutes before a meal so that that calcium is there to bind some of the oxalates. So that will minimize the amount that you have coming in. And that's going to be your first path of reducing the oxalates. So add the calcium before you reduce uh, the dietary oxalates. You also may want to add B6 to facilitate the glyoxalate to glycine conversion and minimize that oxalate formation. So B6 and calcium citrate are great starting points. Um, then you want to start with a slow dietary reduction of those oxalate foods, 5 to 10% per week. So if you're doing green smoothies full of spinach every day, go down to five days a week instead, and then cut it down to three days a week. And then look at where can you substitute a really high oxalate food for a lower oxalate alternative. And it's easy when we're talking about dietary changes to get into a really restrictive state. And that's not sustainable for anybody. And it can put us in a really negative mindset if our life becomes, oh, I can't have this, I can't have that, I can't have this. So I find it's very helpful to find what you can have instead. And there are some great low oxalate, dark leafy greens that we can substitute. So if you're really upset at cutting out things like spinach and Swiss chard, then bring in things like romaine lettuce and your cabbages and lacinato kale. They are wonderful um, nutrient-dense greens that are significantly lower in oxalic acid. So we've got to substitute. We've got to pull the really screamingly high oxalate things out and find a low oxalate substitute so that we're not constantly feeling deprived. Now, since you're dealing with this, your current diet, do you feel bad when you eat an oxalate food or have you gotten things organized enough where eh, you can have some spinach and be okay? I 
do notice it when I eat an excessive amount of oxalate. It doesn't mean that I don't <laughs> eat those foods. I don't eat them on a regular basis. I try to be proactive and take my minerals before I eat if I know there will be some high oxalate foods. And I like to use myself as a guinea pig, so I do periodically test and say, you know what, today I'm going to eat this high oxalate thing and see how I feel. And I end up, you know, after the fact going, all right, I really should have taken my minerals. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I do feel it. Um, with myself, it, it is genetic polymorphism. So if I was dealing with oxalates only because of gut-related issues, then you can, you should be able to get the body to a point where you you're compensating it. adequately and you can eat some of these foods. Yeah. When it's the genetics, the, we always tell people the good news with the genetic polymorphisms is that you can compensate for them, but the bad news is you can compensate for them. I can't change my genes. So I can take the minerals before I eat those foods. I can avoid the highest oxalate foods and I can manage and mitigate for my symptoms. But if I eat a, a big spinach salad, I'm going to regret it the next day and probably for several days after that. And that just means you're going to like your hip pain will return. What happens? Yeah, I, it, it typically the right side issues jump right back in the, the hip pain down the leg. I'll start getting headaches. I'll get a lot of um, upper neck and shoulder stiffness. Um, actually, earlier this week, I went through that. I made some uh, garbanzo bean pasta. And that was enough. Take minerals huh? beforehand. It, uh, it absolutely was enough. And yesterday, I was sitting at my desk, rubbing my shoulder, wondering why it was so stiff. My hips started acting up. And I, I was racking my brain because I didn't eat spinach, I didn't eat any beets, I didn't eat shard. what did I have? But beans like garbanzo beans are also relatively high in oxalates, and I exceeded my threshold. I did not take any minerals before that meal to catch the oxalates, so I, because of this mechanism that I have, and because of my genetic polymorphisms, they slipped through the cracks and stirred up all that pain. Fortunately, because of the work I've been doing, once I went, oh, it definitely is the oxalates, I was very quickly able to bring things in to bring the pain level down. And one of the first things that I did was to add a topical MSM on my sore areas because oxalates and sulfate share receptor sites and transporters. And you can push the oxalates back out by adding adequate sulfate. Cool. I love MSM. Oh, it has become my new best friend. So I rubbed that into my short, sore neck and shoulder. And because the issue for myself with the pain is the oxalates, within about 10 minutes, everything had loosened up. And so how about magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts? So another really excellent way to go. So the when you have people who feel worse after an Epsom salt bath, they're pushing too many oxalates out typically faster than their, their kidneys and filter and excrete them. So sometimes we hear people telling us that, oh, I'm, I'm intolerant to sulfur. I can't have sulfur foods. I can't do things like Epsom salt. And for some people, it's a conversion issue. 
with the SUOX genes, but for a lot of people, it's because their body is overwhelmed with oxalates. So as you bring that sulfur in, you start mobilizing that the oxalates out of the, the tissue into the bloodstream. And they're not out of the body once they're in the bloodstream. They're moving around and they can give us other problems, other pain. Um, so people who get headaches with Epsom salt baths or sulfur-containing foods or MSM, we want to, it's not that we don't want that sulfur. We want to go slower with it. We want to add some additional minerals, especially the calcium and magnesium to help to bind um, the oxalic acid so that we can excrete it in the urine and the stool. So the Epsom salt baths are a great way to go, but just like the dietary changes, we can do too much too quickly. Now, is there a concern by binding? Obviously, if you're binding in the gut and it never makes it in your body, great. But if it's binding with calcium in your bloodstream and then goes to the kidneys, could you be giving yourself kidney stones? What's the danger there? So it, it's somewhat counterintuitive with calcium because, and a lot of medical doctors have a hard time understanding this. There are some great ones who, who really get it. And when we dig deep into the literature, what we see is that when you take calcium with food, this is the key, with food, you decrease kidney stone risk significantly. Right. When there is calcium depletion, kidney stone risk increases. But that is so but are we talking do, diet hang on, are we talking dietarily here or are we talking blood levels? Um blood levels of calcium when they are lower, you are at increased risk for calcium uh oxalate crystal formation. And the low dietary calcium is also associated with increased risk of kidney stone formation. So if but you we have see it on both ends. If you don't have enough calcium, your kidney stone risk increases. So by adding the dietary calcium, especially with meals, you decrease that kidney stone risk significantly. And when people have multiple mechanisms for oxalate overabsorption, we often have to overcompensate with our minerals, calcium and, and especially magnesium, knowing that we're going to be excreting some of the calcium. So it, it's a different way of looking at minerals to think about them, using them as a binder and not necessarily as a, a dietary source of that mineral. But if there's a lot of oxalates, you do need the, the calcium as a binder in you know, addition to some dietary calcium for your body source. The other thing that struck me is the kidney is an amazing regulator of minerals in the body, minerals and electrolytes. And if it, speculation here, total speculation. If it's detecting that you are deficient in a critical mineral or nutrient, would it not just slow down the removal of fluids in order to keep those mineral levels at a functional level? And that that's the precipitation. So you now you've got this these this urine moving much more slowly through the kidneys and given a greater chance for the oxalate to crystallize and form bigger crystals. Is that is that possible? So that's why you would see well, the, the low calcium is like, okay, the kidneys are going to slow down. And as opposed to things slowing down, then you get more chance for, for uh, mineralization in the kidney. What do you think? 
I think there's I think there are several things happening in the kidneys with the oxalates because and a lot of it relates to the sulfur regulation because sulfur levels in the body are largely regulated by the kidneys. So it's not just the the calcium, the magnesium, the potassium, the sodium. But the kidneys are actually our primary sulfur regulator. And the oxalates and the and the the sulfate share transporters and receptor sites and um, there's a gradient between the oxalic acid and the sulfate. And if you overload uh, the body with oxalates, the sulfate is pushed out and most of that is happening in the kidneys. So there is a very direct connection between the, the overabsorption of, of the oxalate into the kidneys where it will then chelate and bind to, to your calcium. That makes total sense. Thanks for clearing it up. Now, Emily, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I really, really appreciate it. And as we bring things to a close, do you see Lyme patients as well? I work in a supportive capacity. So okay. I, because I'm a nutritionist, so I see people with all sorts of conditions. And within my work, what we look at doing is trying to restore nutrient balance to the body. And as we do that, a lot of things improved. So I do see a lot of people with chronic Lyme. Do you see an overlap with oxalates there often, or is it just kind of normal? I don't know what to say, normal demographics with the, the population without Lyme. Like, is it higher with people with well, Lyme? There are additional factors with Lyme that can open the door for overabsorption of oxalates. So we mentioned the disruption of the gut being a major mechanism for a lot of people with um, oxalate issues. So we know that Lyme is really disruptive to the microbiome and to the mucosal barrier in the gut. So if you have leaky gut, either as a result of having Lyme disease or because of maybe years of antibiotics for Lyme treatment, yeah. then you may end up with oxalate issues because of that. There is actually a gut bacteria, oxalobacter, which degrades oxalates, and that can be disrupted uh, when there's Lyme disease or with antibiotics. You know, if the Lyme has compromised things like elimination function or if your Lyme treatments are impacting things like bile flow, there again, you can have, you can develop issues with oxalates. That's such an important thing is you can have Lyme and because it's such a problematic disease that affects other things, we won't even get into the co-infections and, and that overlap mm -hmm. there, but something like Lyme or another tick-borne illness can precipitate another problem. And because we have the diagnosis of Lyme and it's kind of the rock star of the band, so to speak, it's the mm -hmm. it's such a prominent diagnosis that we can forget other problems that then crop up. And then we think the problem is Lyme disease. Because if you have joint pain and you have Lyme disease, it's like, well, of course you have joint pain. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just give you more antibiotics. Right. Well, it doesn't get better. Right. Well, then we need a different antibiotic because it must be something else. And then you just keep hammering mm -hmm. the prob the, the not the problem. You keep hammering the bacteria, but it's not anymore the primary driver of the joint pain. And I think that's exactly. where we have to go with 
Lyme disease. It's not that not to deny people have Lyme disease and yeah, maybe even the bacteria is active, but is it the primary driver of the symptoms? If it's shifted to something else in the body, you all the antibiotics in the world aren't going to help you. Exactly. And I think you hit on such a big thing with that connective tissue pain. And, you know, we have to remember that when the oxalate crystals get into that proximal tissue, what do they give us? Connective tissue pain. Um, and the other uh, comorbidity that we tend to see with, with oxalates that we can really draw a connection with Lyme disease, so many people with Lyme hurt so badly. They feel like they just cannot detoxify. And oxalates in excess in the body will outcompete the, with sulfur for the, the sulfate receptor sites which is so critical for glutathione hepatic detoxification. Yeah. yeah. No so sulfur, no glutathione. glutathione. Exactly. So then you can't detoxify. So you can't get through the Lyme treatments and it's not necessarily the Lyme that's giving you a hard time detox detoxifying, but the Lyme opens the door for the overabsorption of oxalates, which then deplete the sulfur. And now you've got this vicious cycle. Wow. Brutal. If things weren't bad enough, but actually this is good news, when you can begin to identify, like in your story, you ran around in circles and had all kinds of diagnosis, just like a Lyme story. And then when you finally hit on the right diagnosis, it's like, okay, I'm back in control. You know, my hands are on the steering wheel of my car instead of the rear view mirror, you know, and I wonder why I keep crashing into exactly. things. Okay. Mm -hmm. Last so question. Me, okay, was, go ahead. <laughs> I figured out that minerals help. And yeah. I didn't know why. So a lot of people go, oh, you know what? I feel better with Epsom salt baths. I feel better when I take minerals. And and maybe it's because of the oxalates. Very cool. And that actually leads into the final question. Three things that you'd recommend for people who think they might be dealing with oxalates. What are the top three? Top three. B6, typically as P5P. Minerals, especially calcium and magnesium, taken before meals, and sulfur-containing things like MSM, glucosamine, or chondroitin sulfate, or Epsom salt baths. Fabulous. So those are my top three. Thank you so much. You're very gentle with your time. If people want to contact you, either they're in the Afreda area, or do you do phone consultations as well? I don't know. I do. I see people all over the country. Great. How do they get hold of you? That either they can reach me. I practice with Bob Miller at Tree of Life in Effort of Pennsylvania. Um, you can check us out on the web at tolhealth.com, or you can call our office at 717-733-2003. And I'll have all that data on the website under Emily's interview. So if you're driving along and you can't write it down right now, don't worry. Just go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and look there or just go right to Tree of Life and you will find it there as well. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, McKay. This was a lot of fun. This was really interesting, you know, it seems like you are starting to focus a little bit more on 
looking at symptoms and treating symptoms of people's illnesses. And I know your career is based on finding, treating and finding the cause. So kind of how do you reconcile like kind of this symptom chasing with this core value that you do with that you hold with, okay, we got to find the cause. Well, oxalates are a cause. Okay. They're not a symptom. So oxalates cause all kinds of inflammation. So similar to, let's take, for example, Lyme, right? So if you have inflammation being caused by an infection and you just throw, let's say, steroids at it, you're not going to cure the infection. In fact, you're going to weaken the immune system and make things worse, right? So if you have oxalates in your joint, literally little shards of sharp crystals in your joints, destroying your joints, you can throw antibiotics at it, you can throw anti-inflammatories at it, but the sand's still in there. The crystals are still in there chewing up your joints. You got to get rid of the crystals. So that's not a symptom. It's a cause. Does it make sense? Yeah, you need to understand what the cause is before you have an effective treatment. So oxalates are one of those hidden items that can be a cause and a deep problem that's invisible. And that's really what we're trying to do here at Lyme Ninja Radio is uncover these additional invisible items that might be holding you back. It may seem the symptoms may just completely overlap and look like Lyme disease, but it may not be. It could be something else. Yep. In addition to Lyme. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so we're not chasing symptoms. It, and it's not, and it's more looking at kind of a, it's almost like a grocery list. It's like, okay, Lyme disease is at the is at the top, but we got to check off X, Y, and Z. Too. Yeah. Especially if things aren't getting better. You know, if you've done everything you're supposed to be doing in terms of taking care of an infection and you're still hurting, you know, it may be an ongoing infection, but- Maybe there's something else there, too. It's important to look outside of the Lyme disease box to clear those things as well. Just because you have Lyme disease doesn't mean you can't have other problems as well. All right? All right. Okay. Satisfied? Yes, and we can't be myopic about Lyme disease. Right. It's very, very important, but it may not be the only problem that you're dealing with. It's an important message. And if you like what we're doing here at Lyme Ninja Radio... Hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you support us by donating $1 a month. For just $1, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. Head on over to our homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the link under the How Can We Help You headline. Thanks, Aurora. And if you have any feedback for us, please send it to feedback at limeninjaradio.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions for guests, feedback on how we're doing. Love us, hate us, don't ignore us. Yes. (laughs) Love us, hate us, just don't ignore us. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete without the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know, when a ninja puts his phone on airplane mode, he can fly it?
Stranger Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.